welcome once again to a special Noble Hearts Forum presentation of center-left radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and as always, I'm pleased to be your host. Now, this is something like our 750th or 60th show over the course of the last five and a half years, and our seventh or eighth Noble Hearts Forum. Now, the name Noble Hearts comes from the lyrics of our high school song. We were all part of the same class at a very special school in Manhattan, Regis High School. And at that time, when we were there, a few decades back, it was considered one of the best, if not the best, high school in America. And I believe today, it's uh, still ranked as the best Catholic high school in America. Not, not too shabby. Our panel today consists of three members of our class. Two of them should be familiar to regular listeners. Dr. Charles Webel is currently professor and guarantor of the School of International Affairs at the State University of New York in Prague. Hopefully his internet uh, connection will remain cooperative over the next hour. A five-time Fulbright scholar, he has published 13 books, many of which deal with issues of war and peace. He's currently working on volume two. I think you're still working on it, Charles, aren't you? Of his, modestly, on me. Ah, of his modestly titled trilogy, The Fate of This World and the Future of Humanity, as well as on a novel entitled Academia, that's with three Ks, The Mind Reels. John Cugini graduated from Columbia University with a major in philosophy, picked up a master's in computer science from the University of Iowa, spent seven years as a computer programmer and instructor for the U.S. Army, and 30 years as a computer scientist for the National Bureau of Standards, where he developed programs for a whole range of disciplines, including programming languages, graphics and visualization, and even voting systems. Like me, he began his life, as a, his political life anyway, as a Republican. Unlike me, he has remained a Republican and sounds remarkably like what normal Republicans used to sound like. I'm not trying to set you up for anything, John. Just, just, just so you're aware of that. Of course, okay. Today's newbie panelist is Dr. Richard Corelli, a Stanford-trained, board-certified psychiatrist who has spent more than four decades as a practicing clinician and as a member of the adjunct clinical faculty at Stanford University. He served as chief of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and as chairman of the Psychiatry Emergency Room Panel at El Camino Hospital and was included in the U.S. News and World Report's lists of top doctors in America in 2012. And I'm just scratching the surface here. Rich is a gifted portrait artist, and in his own words, is passionate about spending time in talk therapy with clients rather than providing a quick fix through psychiatric medication, which is to say he is blessedly out of step with far too many members of his own profession these days. My hope is we'll get him to run afoul of the Goldwater rule today. And, uh, you know, barring that, he'll give us some insight into what makes people like Vladimir Putin tick. Um, oh, and I honestly didn't realize this until I read you. But we were at Manhattan College together, but I don't remember ever seeing you there or certainly not the local bars, which might explain why you graduated with only a three-point Nine eight. How the hell did you screw up, Rich? Ancient art. Uh, ain't. 
Mr. Eight. Woods, Mr. Woods. Yes. <laughs> with a click, with a clicker that changed the pictures. Oh exactly. my, he gave you, he didn't give anyone an A. He gave everyone B's mostly. That was the story. Mm -hmm. Oh my, as, as, as we, mi más sentido pésame, as we would say in Spanish. That's wonderful. <laughs> There's only one unit. Oh my, oh my. Oh well, it explains that anyway. Uh, my, my, my image of you is revived, and not, well, in any event. Last winter, uh, we, we did a forum on what was then the buildup to the current Russian invasion of Ukraine. And at the time, the general consensus of the panel was that America should just mind its own damn business because Russia was really just posturing. Now, Dr. Webble was on that panel, and towards the end of the show, he offered a but what if Russia invades scenario that was largely overlooked by the other panelists. Uh, if, if, if you should know that Charles's area of expertise is nonviolence, nonviolence resistance. In fact, he wrote or, or co-wrote the most widely used college text on the subject. So one of the questions we were dealing with back then was, were there viable nonviolent means that could be used to avoid a military conflict? And if there were, well, obviously they weren't used or they were not used successfully. Now, our plan was to begin this forum on that same note. Are there any viable nonviolent measures to end this mess that can be taken by Ukrainians generally and by Russians of good conscience? And, 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 and now I, I asked that question knowing full well that in the last 48 hours, protests against Putin's call-up of some 300,000 Russian reservists has sparked street protests throughout Russia with over 1,000 arrests. Charles Webble, is, is this simply a fortuitous turn of events? Could, could these protests have been predicted or even planned? Could this be the, the prelude to a nonviolent solution? Well, there's a famous expression going back more than 50 years in political science regarding the relationship between violent conflict and diplomacy, and it's also attributed to Winston Churchill, among others. Jaw, 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 rather than war, war, war. Mm. And unfortunately, the uh, the fate of the absence of jaws in this case has led to a conflict whose outcome is completely unpredictable. At the very beginning, when Russia's so-called special military operation began, there were widespread street and other kinds of protests throughout all of Europe and all of Russia. And thousands of people were arrested in Russia yeah. at that time. And um, Comrade, which is what he likes to call himself, but in Russian the word is Kavaish, uh, Putin um, decided to clamp down hard. And much of the opposition uh, escaped, went into exile. There are thousands of Russians in Prague, many of whom got here before the war, but many also have come since the war. And they were literally on the streets yesterday. Yeah. Hundreds of Russians protesting the measures that Comrade Putin uh, may adopt to escalate the war. So 
protests against the war ebb and flow. This is true of every war that has generated in the war-making country widespread resistance. It was true during the uh, protests against the Vietnam War in which some of us, many of us participated. Yep. It ebbs and flows depending upon many factors. The most important factor is repression, state repression. And the degree to which the state represses the protests violently and or nonviolently, either arresting or beating them or doing both, which is what the Russians do, uh, is a major contributing factor to the success or lack of success of the movement. All that said, I do want to refer to a study uh, conducted, it started to be conducted almost 20 years ago, and it's still ongoing on civil resistance by Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan. Hmm. And I forwarded to you gentlemen a kind of summary of that yeah. study. Yeah. Um, and one of the important findings of that study, which compared 323 resistance campaigns conducted around the world against governments and against occupying forces between 1900 and 2007, was defection. The extent to which a nonviolent protest movement may be successful, meaning either getting rid of a despot or ending the occupation by an invading army, uh, hinges on several important variables. But in the context of civilian protests, the, most, the two most important variables are the size of the protests and the so-called magic number involved in that campaigns that involve 3.5% or more of the population of the country are more than twice as likely to succeed in their political aims as campaigns that involve fewer. The second important variable, there are seven, but the second important variable for our concerns is if the protesters adopt nonviolent mass resistant tactics, they're much more likely to generate defections among the other sides, military, police forces, political and business elites. And that may or may not be happening now in Russia. We don't know. There were rumors of this, that autocrats and oligarchs are very displeased with the way the campaign is going. One could argue they're displeased because it wasn't a quick victory, or they're displeased because Putin hasn't escalated it sufficiently. I think those are the two most important factors for that group. Yeah. And they're displeased because the sanctions are cutting into their vacations in the south of France, which is very important for an oligarch who has five yachts parked in the harbor in Nice, which I've actually seen huh. sitting there, and uh, they're locked down by the local police, yep. unable to use. Yeah. So whether or not a mass civilian campaign in Russia succeeds in destabilizing the government and or in minimizing the potential for escalation, as was pointed out, 300,000 more people uh, may be joining the ranks of the uh, army and conscripts and mercenaries already in Ukraine, is unknown. Um, we don't know what's going to happen. We do know what's happened in the past. And in the past, roughly 53% of civilian nonviolent mass resistance campaigns have succeeded in achieving whatever their political aims are. And here would be uh, overcoming an occupation in 
the areas that Russia has already seized and preventing the further escalation of hostilities in the areas that Russia has not yet seized. 27% of violent or primarily violent campaigns succeed. So it's roughly a two to one ratio. And I already mentioned three of the important variables that account for that. When you have a campaign focused on weaponry, which is what the Ukrainian government is primarily focused on, although there are nonviolent components to their resistance as well, but the primary international public relations emphasis has been on weapons. When you have that kind of resistance, you succeed in achieving your political aims, which is in this case, ending the Russian uh, aggression and minimizing the Russian occupation. That succeeds roughly one quarter of the time. Hmm. So the odds are not great that the resistance to Russian oppression and aggression that is primarily conducted through weaponry and the escalation of, of violence by both sides that the Ukrainians will succeed. It doesn't mean they won't. It means the odds historically are stacked against them. If, however, they combine that with the widespread massive civil resistance campaign, the odds roughly double. Still, 47% of the time, a nonviolent or primarily nonviolent resistance campaign to oppression and an occupation fails for all kinds of reasons, which we might want to explore. So to mix my metaphors, there, no, there is no magic bullet to having a nonviolent or indeed a violent movement succeed. Instead, all we can do is study what has worked and not worked in the past and hope that the Ukrainians and the West learn some of the lessons from the past. Hmm. Rich Corelli does, when someone like a Vladimir Putin, I'm not going to go, we're not going to get into the Goldwater rule, I hope, but someone like a Vladimir Putin is confronted with a sudden surge of protest after he's threatened and people have been prosecuted and thrown in jail for 15 years and stuff like that. Is it predictable? Is there anything predictable about what his behavior or someone like Putin's behavior might be at this point in a conflict? Is there, is there anything that, that you could, that you see in, 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 this, in the dynamics of this situation right now? You raise a, a good question, right? First of all, I'm not sure whether the Goldwater rule applies outside the United States. Good. <laughs> good, then go for it. <laughs> we, um, we, should re, we should restate the Goldwater rule. You, you can't do sort of a casual uh, psychoanalysis or analysis of a public person without having some kind of actual contact with them. And we are talking about someone outside of the country. And I don't think that Mr. Putin really would... Probably not mind <laughs> all that much, but maybe, who knows? Nor, nor would he likely subject himself to a psychiatric evaluation. Thank you, yeah. Which would give some more definitive answers to your question. Yeah. Um, for, for me, the conflict is really about understanding Vladimir Putin's psychology, yeah. who he is, what makes him tick, what motivates him. Um, up until this morning, I knew very little about him. But of course, I did my research in the hour or two before we started. 
clearly his family was quite devastated by World War II. He was born in 1952, which makes him 70 years old, um, our age. Yep. And like us, I'm sure he contemplates his mortality and the end of his life and what he will leave behind for his country, for his children. A couple of other interesting things. We've all seen that heroic picture of him on horseback, bare chest. Yes. Macho yes. man. Yeah. There's some conjecture that he might be taking anabolic steroids. Mm. These are the things that weightlifters take to build up muscle mass. Yeah. Unfortunately, they have detrimental psychological effects, including hostility, paranoia, impulsivity. Also learned that no one knows how tall he is. They conjecture somewhere between five foot one and five foot five, though he's never been measured. He's a short man, and he has a short man Napoleonic complex. Right? Yeah. You're short, and you've had a tough life, which it sounds like he has. Um, delusions of grandeur often arise. My sense is that the outcome is not going to be good. If this were a chess game, we would be able to see that five or six moves out, we reach a stalemate. Yeah. And that's the nuclear option. So if we have, hypothetically, a paranoid psychopath who no one is brave enough to challenge, who feels threatened, whether he wins or loses a particular battle, I think the outcome is going to be the same. Things will just escalate. The other conjecture, hypothetically, is that he may have some terminal illness. I've heard in this, yeah, case, that's been raised. Yeah. In which case, given that he's has psychopathic tendencies, lack of empathy. He may want to take us all with him. So you wait, I, I have to just jump in here because I, I hear, first of all, there's two things that I want to jump in with. The first thing is the, the analogy to another, to an American uh, who is otherwise known as the orange Jesus. Uh, it's hard not to listen to what you're saying and your definitions of a personality type and everything else. And granted, uh, he came from, the other guy came from uh, wealth, but that was all false wealth. Much of it was, we're learning that. But the tendencies that you described are frightening uh, in, in their similarity. But we'll get to that in a little bit. But, but more so here, you would seem to be saying that you can actually imagine this guy going with the nuclear option? Are you saying that from professionally? I'm saying that the risks are extremely high, that oh he is unpredictable. His behavior has been described as erratic by people who have interacted with him on the political stage. Yeah. Um, he's at the end of his life. There's my sense little to lose yeah. for him yeah. going to the very extremes. 
my sense is that he is experiencing desperation at this point. Nothing is going the way he expected it to. And I think his tendency to strike out unpredictably, erratically, and quickly, we will see in the next few months. John Cugini, mm -hmm. what, okay, let's, let's, given everything that Rich has said here and everything that Charles has said, and I... Could I, I not, add a couple of foot... Excuse please, me please go ahead, you. please go ahead, yeah. But I actually had the mixed pleasure of meeting and chatting with uh, Comrade Putin yeah. um, 35 years ago in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, of all places, in the then uh, Soviet Union, which was then undergoing a brief spell of openness, literally the word glasness, when uh, one of my heroes, Mikhail Gorbachev, um, was the leader of the country. Yeah. And my interactions, which were brief, limited to an hour at a social event in a drama studio of all places in Tashkent, uh, were very similar to Rich's uh, conjectures and hypotheses, but mine were based on personal experience. Uh, he's not as short as he's rumored to have been. Um, then I would have said, if I had a measuring stick, he was a couple of inches shorter than I was, but not short. At that time, I was about 5'9 or 5'10, so he was around 5'7 or 5'8. Uh, we both shrunk Upstairs, downstairs, I don't want to speculate about, but uh, we could go in that direction if we want yeah. to hit below the belt, but yeah. that might be a, a factor as well. He yeah. was the coldest, most controlling human being I've ever met in my life. And my impressions at that time were if anyone in his vicinity said or did anything that he could not control, he would feel acutely threatened mm. and anxious. And his sense of being in control has no limits. And he's maybe recognizing right now that he's not nearly as in control of the situation in Ukraine or even perhaps of the situation in the Kremlin as he thought he would be and as he would be comfortable with. And so I agree with Rich, um, I have to confess, <laughs> that the risks are very high. Yeah. Uh, but there are countervailing forces, meaning the risk of escalation leading to the use of nuclear weapons, probably tactical nuclear weapons. The risk is substantial. I don't want to put a number on it. It's based on all kinds of factors we can't yet predict. Um, but one of the factors that should be mentioned is, does he feel pressure inside the Kremlin to resign or withdraw or take a forced vacation in Siberia or an unwanted uh, leap out of a hospital six-floor window? Russia, except for the transition from Gorbachev to Yeltsin and from Yeltsin to Putin, has never had peaceful succession or transfers of power. It occurs on the basis of coups and hereditary privileges from father to son, in the case of emperor to 
to a prince. Um, this is not something in the 1,000 year history of Russia, the Russians are used to dealing with. Yeah. Uh, a losing war at the moment with a kind of ersatz czar who feels, I agree with Rich, one way or the other, his days are numbered. How serious will the internal opposition within the ruling elites in and around the Kremlin become if and when they perceive that Putin is a loser? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going, and, and what you're bringing up reminds me of a strategy that was taken by the Biden administration as the buildup was taking place around the borders of Ukraine. And Joe Biden made the decision, I'm, I'm sure in consultation with others, to be as open about what we knew they were doing as we could possibly be. And there are a number of people who said that that openness, that, that direct threatening or threatening, challenging Putin with the truth of his own actions set a dynamic up that, that really has sustained itself throughout this entire situation. Is there anything that the United States could do, and, and I'm throwing this to you, John, uh, do you, if we were to go and re-pursue, if you will, uh, okay, we, we've just gotten word that Putin is looking around, he's looking about uh, and saying, well, how can we restation and how can we reposition potential nuclear warheads or something along those lines? And suddenly we go back into this reveal, reveal, openness situation. We start talking about secret information that would otherwise be completely protected. Could that have a positive impact on stopping him? Is he capable of being stopped by information, do you think? And I'm talking now more tactically at this point. Can we, can we, can we chess play him to a position where, well, everybody knows I'm about to do this, I don't think I can, or does he do it anyway? I don't know. Yeah, let me, uh, with your permission, uh, let me jump back to uh, the earlier part of the segment. Go. I want to comment on Charles's first gently push back against Charles's first uh, um, statement about resistance. Um, I want to insert a note of pessimism here. Um, first, some news reporting that I've read, and you know who knows how accurate it is, says that the support for Putin and the war inside Russia runs 70-80%, and that what you're seeing is you know the protest of educated urban elites a fraction of whom are anti-war. So obviously there are some people in, in Russia that are anti-war. It, it's not at all clear that they constitute a significant minority, let alone a majority. It, also, the, the non-violent uh, protest rule that Charles was talking about, uh, having uh, you know 53% success rate, that was premised on, I believe, 3.5% of the population being involved in the protest. So for Russia at 145 million, that you know, let's call it five million people. Yep. So when we see five million people in the streets marching through Moscow and St. Petersburg, you know, then we're in the ballpark of of where you know these protest movements can actually have an effect. My my suspicion is you know a few thousand people. You know, excuse me, John. I just want to add to your pessimism. It's 3.5 percent. Yeah. Not zero point five percent. So it actually have to be over fifteen million. Mm. No, no, wait. Three point five. We have one hundred forty-five million Russians. So one percent is one point four, and three point five would be a five million people. 
My math, my math says five million people. Your math is better. But it always was. Dispute that. But 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 anyway, uh, split the difference, anyway. guys. Come on. Anyway, computer science here. Come on. Give me give me some credit. So um, so yeah. Uh, to the second point, in terms of deterrence through information, um, it, it might help marginally. Um, it's really hard to say what goes on inside the head of someone about to take a chance like that. And, and getting back to Charles's second statement, which now I, I will agree with somewhat, is that I think if there's meaningful resistance inside Russia, it's inside the Kremlin. It's not in the streets. You know, there, there might be people there who say, hey, th- you know, this, is, this was a bet and it's going wrong. And now Putin wants to take us over the cliff with nuclear weapons. No thanks. I, I don't know whether such a faction exists. I'm sure there are at least two or three people inside the Kremlin thinking that. But if there's enough of them and if they're well-placed enough to do anything about it, you know, God, God knows. Right? Yeah. So, but, but, but adding information can't hurt. So I agree. If, if Biden can do that, it, it, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure it'll have a big effect, but it can't hurt. One of the, one of the things that I read regularly is that one of the things that Putin seems to be banking on is the notion that Europeans and NATO members in Europe, with the restriction on energy and the long, cold winter coming up, that there's, and the threat now added to that of the possibility, I'm not kidding, of, of a nuclear war yeah. situation, there will be a, a movement to appease him and make oh, sure. it go right. Now, is that... Is that a viable possibility? I mean, I've obviously, from everything that Rich was saying, that seems to be something that would stroke Putin's psyche nicely, and he's, he seems to be setting that up. But is there any chance of that, that, that the Europeans will, will that we'll, that the Europeans and I suppose us will break ranks over? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, I, I, right now, I think that's somewhat less likely than more likely. But, but again, of course, in the West, more so than Russia, opinion is is divided. It always is. It's a, it always will be. I'm sure there are people right now in the West who say this is crazy. We shouldn't have even be shouldn't even be giving them weapons. We should we should you know pull back. And uh, some you know some number of people will will push that. I I think the leadership is strong enough that we're going to get through the winter. That would that would be my guess. Okay. Um, I right. know well, who just allowed fracking. Was it England or, or Germany lifted a ban on fracking? Uh, because you know you really need energy and you can't get fussy. You know I'm sorry I hate nuclear reactors, but you know they come in handy. Yeah, yeah California yeah. is learning as well, so maybe there's a little reality check going on there. We're, we're gonna we're gonna take a short break here, but be, but when we come back, I just want I just want to float this thought: What happens when Americans begin to seriously believe that Vlad? Well, I, I guess I have to I have to go this in two steps. Can Americans be brought to believe, and I think, Rich, this is as much to you as anybody, can Amer- are Americans ready to believe that nuclear weapons might be used by Putin? And if we do believe it, what effect will that have on everything that's being done by Native and, uh, NATO and all of the support that we're giving to it? I want to I wanna begin with that thought, but we just have a little stuff to deal with over here. It's what we do with Center Left Radio. We'll be back just after a little jazz.
Hi, this is Richard Gazer. You know, it takes lots of time and effort and all kinds of resources to produce the kind of quality program we produce here at Center Left Radio. And it costs money to do it. Now, if we screamed a little louder or thought a little less about what we were saying, we could probably get a few advertisers to pay us to sell their products to a more tribally predictable audience. But that's not who we are or who you are. You come to center-left radio for non-commercial, thoughtful commentary. You're looking for an honest, progressive approach to solving America's problems, not exacerbating them. And we're committed to providing all of that. We're one of the few stations offering full-time, non-commercial, progressive programming. And we're the only station, the only one, doing it with a combination of hope, politics, and that most eloquent of all original American art forms, jazz. Think of it this way. We support your needs. Now we're asking you to support ours. Take a moment and go to our website, www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com, and go to the donate page. And when you get there, give whatever you can on a one-time or maybe a recurring basis, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever you can contribute to make center-left radio's unique progressive voice stronger and even more significant as the full extent of the wrongdoing of Donald Trump and his associates becomes all the more evident. And as we seek to hold the House Democrats accountable for the promises they made to the American people during the last election. Yeah, you know what's at stake. And I know, we all know, we can count on you. On behalf of all of us at Central F Radio, thank you. And we're back. Uh, my guests today on this Noble Hearts Forum uh, are Dr. Charles Webble, John Cugini, and Dr. Rich Corelli. We, we, we kind of left, I don't know that it's a cliffhanger, but it's... it's um, it's a tough one. It's one that we, I imagine when we were growing up, the three of us, was a thought that was in our heads constantly, the possibility of nuclear war. We grew up with this as kids. This is the first time in my lifetime that I can think of that someone in a position of power actually seems as though they might use them, do something with them. Rich, Corelli, what, what does that do to the psyche of America? What, how, far does, how far will we allow Putin to go before we do what? It's a, a very good but difficult question. Um, I think that as a species, we tend to have a lot of hubris. We think that we are at the top of the pinnacle of existence yeah. of all the creatures on Earth. And it may be that we are just a species that comes and goes in the vast history of time. There's no guarantees that our species won't go extinct and that it won't go extinct by our own hand. To imagine that Putin is bluffing, I think, is the big mistake. Everything that's been described about him 
Charles's um, personal encounter with him only reinforces what I've learned reading about him. I think he is bent on self-destruction. One of the things that um, is interesting for me is the phenomenon of identifying with the aggressor. And I think that Putin's life really was shaped by World War II, by the Nazi invasion of Russia, by the killing of his grandmother, um, any number of those transgenerational traumas that he has inherited, I think he is quite capable in that the odds are better than 50-50, that he will act out in some way tactical nuclear weapons, a limited strike. I mean, if he sets off a tactical nuclear bomb, let's say one or two, is the West going to retaliate in full force? What do we do? The question. He knows that we are... We, we can't do anything. He could detonate a bomb. We are not going to retaliate in full force and destroy the, the world. He can just keep doing that. He can just seem pushing that boundary. In my mind, there are only two possible good outcomes. One is, as you've alluded to, that the inner circle in the Kremlin rebels against him in some way, and I'll leave it to your imagination what that way most likely would be. Mm. The other is... I think to advise the to advise the president on how to deal with Putin, we need to get hostage negotiators. Putin is essentially holding Europe and the rest of the world hostage at this point. He has taken hostages. He's threatening to kill them all with nuclear weapons. And we need to get those negotiators who know how to get someone to lay down their arms and release the hostages. Who, who are these people who could negotiate on behalf of a cap of an of a of a trap nation? I'm sure has yeah. hostage negotiators, many police departments. The psychology of how to deal with that kind of a criminal to find out what it is that they really want. What is it that Putin really needs? What kind of affirmation, what kind of, um, that he needs some something reassured about who he is and his place in history. John, if the United States believes that Putin is on the verge of using nuclear weapons, do we wait to see, or do you think we wait to see it happen? Is there any kind of preemptive action that you can imagine this country taking if we felt damn sure he was on the verge of actually using something? 
it, it, it's hard to imagine what that would be because you don't know where where they're launched from. Uh, I, I guess I, I would I, I would think movement of nuclear materials. We'd probably have some knowledge of this, and I'm saying if we had some. something fairly specific to go on. Is there any form of preemptive action? Assume that we know where they are and where they most likely would go. Well, what? Like, I, I mean, I could think of two, two possible courses of action without recommending them. Yeah. One would be a sort of preemptive threat of what we'll call, for one or better word, super sanctions, where we let Russia maybe get the UN to pass a resolution, whatever, Initial use of nuclear weapons means that Russia is just completely cut off. There's no commerce in or out in any way, shape, or form, and, you know, threaten them with starvation, essentially. And this would be preemptive, and, preemptively and, and, we're and talking put that about. Up front. Yeah, put that up front. Okay, before, all right. This is before it happens. You might yeah. this before yeah. it happens. Yeah. Uh, the, the other, uh, I mean, the other thing we haven't talked much about, because it seems a little you know, uh, two steps ahead of where we are and, and uh, maybe preemptive, but talk about the, the outlines of what a final deal would look like. And the thing that's been rattling, I offer this to the world free of charge, but here, here's my, my, my uh, proposed peace treaty. Yeah. You have to give both sides something. So give Putin some of the territory that they currently occupy. So he, he takes some of the eastern provinces of Ukraine, maybe some in the south. Well, Ukraine doesn't like that. Gee, I lost some of my territory. Two months later, he could invade again. In uh, in response to that, or in return, Ukraine becomes a member of NATO. The rest of Ukraine becomes a member of NATO, so that Ukraine now is guaranteed. Okay, you've lost, you know, you've lost a hand and a foot, but that's it. And you know, we'll we'll put you know American and I guess Swedish and Finnish troops now uh, in Ukraine, so that so that that's it. Um, you know, if you could come up with the outline of a deal where people are scared enough that they might actually want to take it, you know, that would be something like that. Put put a deal on the table and say, but initial use of nuclear weapons, we will economically strangle you to the maximum extent we are capable. If we can, we will cause a famine in Russia if we can manage it and we might be able to manage it. Charles. You know, and see, see where that gets you. Yeah, no, no. Charles, is it is it possible in your knowledge of the Russians and the way you see Putin that the elite struck the powers that be in Russia with Putin around him could tolerate the notion of a, okay, here's a little land. I'm taking John's second point. Here's some land in, in, in Ukraine. You've got that. The rest of it, it all now becomes NATO. Would that be tolerable to them? Under any circumstances. I have no direct personal knowledge of who's I'm asking for your gut. I'm asking for your gut. My gut? Yeah. You want to sp me to spill my guts? <laughs> As I'm addressing you, I'm watching out of my left eyeball uh, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of the Soviet Union. <laughs> that was a good slip. <laughs> <laughs> addressing yeah. the United Nations at the moment. My goodness. And I, I can't obviously understand what he's saying because I can't read lips, especially Russian lips. Uh, but I assume it's along the lines that we will not be intimidated, yeah. Yeah. that our goals yeah. are legitimate, and we will use every means to achieve them. Yeah. Now, the scenario of a coup, I'll call a coup a coup, 
for lack of a better coup, um, in the Kremlin doesn't necessarily mean that someone better would replace Putin. True. It could well mean that hardline, much more belligerent, unrestrained uh, generals who have been who have been put down in one way or another, literally or metaphorically, yeah. by Putin since the war began, uh, decide they've had enough, and um, all restraints are off, and they will do whatever is necessary in their minds to. Um, defend Russian territory, which, according to the fake referenda to be taken very soon, will put the provinces of um, Luhansk and Donetsk and possibly Zaporizhia as well uh, within the Russian security zone. If that's done and the war grinds on as it is with Ukraine making small but measurable gains, then Russia can invoke the nuclear option because its state security is threatened. They don't need Putin to do that. Mm. Putin might well be a moderating force in the Kremlin. (laughs) That's true. That's that's, that's interesting. Yeah. And as I read indirectly, I do get Russian TV stations in Prague, although most of them were cut off at the beginning of the war. Yeah. Uh, the push is not to make peace with Ukraine. The push is to do what is ever, whatever is necessary to achieve our war goals. And if that means using tactical nuclear weapons, if that means allowing nuclear power plants to blow up so that the wind drifts west, of course yeah. they can't predict that, but yeah. Putin alluded to that yesterday. Uh, so be it. So this is desperation. I, I, this sounds. I, I can't think of another word to describe this. This is. These would be. Well, this the has happened a de- hundred times in Russian history. Yeah. I want to go back to that for a minute. Yeah. Um, I think Putin would like to be remembered as the contemporary equivalent of Peter the Great, and there are some archival and doctrinal evidence to that effect in terms of his reading of history, in terms of the so-called history he confabulated about a year a year and a half ago in terms of his personal background. One thing also to understand about Putin and his background, which Rich didn't mention, is that Putin was mentored by criminal mafiosi gang leaders. Uh, some of his role models when he was a scruffy teenager living in a cold water room, and I, I've been in those flats, I know what they're like. It's a communal apartment where people literally share the same toilet. Mm. And he grew up in one of those, and very tough. Imagine growing up on the south side of Chicago or the South Bronx when we were kids. That's the equivalent. Yeah. So... He grew up in an environment of dog-eat-dog, and you survive by whatever means is necessary. And if that means you take out the other guy before he can take you out, so be it. So while everyone is tiptoeing around the issue of nuclear weapons beyond tactical nuclear weapons, I will go where no one has gone before. I think Putin or his generals, if they really feel they're losing, and if they 
use tactical nuclear weapons and it doesn't achieve their war aims, would seriously consider using strategic nuclear weapons. Um, he's alluded to London being turned into dust. I saw a Russian television program two nights ago where a member of Putin's party in the Russian Duma in the parliament openly speculated about obliterating every political leader at Queen Elizabeth's funeral because you could get them all in one place at the same time. This was on Russian national television three days ago. I saw it. <laughs> the reaction wasn't horror or um, uneasy laughter. The reaction is, yeah, why didn't I think of that before? <laughs> My God. <laughs> so I think, I, I, you know, I don't want to get in at this point to Rich's end of the world scenario. Um, I do that in my next book, Preview of Forthcoming <laughs> Extractions. Um, but, but if you have the use of strategic nuclear weapons, the West will retaliate. That's, that's what and my that, thought would be, yeah. yeah. And that is the end. At least it's the end of the Northern Hemisphere. Rich, I, th there was an earlier question that I posed to you before our first break, and that was, I could not help but draw the analogies uh, between what you were doing and, and your way of referring to Vladimir Putin and what we're watching Donald Trump become and how he is acting right now. I, I think we'd be highly remiss uh, if, if we didn't include in a discussion about the mindset and psyche and possible motivations and, and reactions of, of, of Vladimir Putin, a little bit of a study of where Donald Trump is going because it seems what he's going through right now and, and, and the pressures that are coming to build on him are no different. And I see a lot of similarities in, from your discussion of, of, of Putin. There's a lot of Trump in there. Can I, make, can I make two quick observations? I think characterologically there are a lot of similarities. I agree with Rich and many others about that. However, I think there are two key differences. The first key difference is Trump isn't president of the United States. Putin is president of Russia. Trump may or may not have access to nuclear codes. That could be well part of the top, ultra top secret documents that haven't been revealed that he took with him to Mar-a-Lago. But they're not there anymore. They're, they're supposedly secure. So one can assume he no longer has access to those codes if, in fact, he did bring them with him. That's a major difference. The second major difference is I see Trump as a charlatan, as a showman, as all, as all bluster and no substance, uh, as hot air, in other words. Putin is not hot air. Putin is dead serious. So while they may both be pathological narcissists and borderline paranoids, and I don't disagree with that, those are two important differences. Rich, would you agree with uh, Charles's assessment? Yes, I would say Putin probably has double the IQ of Trump. That's not so, saying a lot, but okay. <laughs> so, um, he, he's a low grade. He's a high grade moron, as opposed to a low grade moron. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. My goodness. What I what I suspect is that what we're seeing in both Trump and Putin. In Hitler, in the Pope, is this 
uh, malignant narcissism, this uh, grandiosity, this quasi-delusional thinking, restoring, you know, the empire to the way things used to be. Yeah. Um, I think that they both share unhappy childhoods. Um, one of the other things about Putin that I read is he was the third child, the youngest child. An older brother died, I think, at childbirth, and another one died from starvation during the uh, German invasion. Um, so trauma and lack of affection, lack of love, lack of empathy, I think is part of both of their backgrounds. Yeah. And as such, I mean, I think we really need to see both of them as capable of unimaginable horrors that I wouldn't put it past them. There's no morality. There's no ethics. There is no empathy for other the, the both being that if Trump had the power to do what Putin has the power to do, he could do the same horrible things that you obviously feel that Putin is capable of. Um, I, I have no mm, doubt that mm. he would press the button just as easily as Putin would. Would you agree, John? Oh, I think we're getting a little carried away. Um, All right. I don't want to. I don't want to defend Trump a whole lot because I, I think he's an asshole and a lunatic. So let me, let me get that out there. How do you really and feel about him? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, have, yeah. having, having said, said that, uh, they, they do seem to me a, a, a different personality type. And I, I kind of sign on to what Charles said. I, uh, you know, uh, Trump is a, a grandstanding blowhard narcissist that wings it and, you know, has, has certain good political instincts, but overshadowed by incredibly bad judgment. Whereas Putin is, you know, much more capable guy, knows where he's going, how to get there, and, you know, yeah. navigates his way up to the peak of power in the in the Kremlin. Yeah. Um, I guess you can comment, it's more a comment on context than their character that um, in we have a political system in America where even a guy like Trump ultimately doesn't, wind up doing much because all the elites surrounding him are, are, you know, they're invested in, in a, a liberal democratic order and Trump can rail and scream all he wants. But even his own vice president said, look, that's not the way it's going. Yeah. We're going to count elections yeah. like we have for 200 years. Yeah. And of course there's no such political culture or infrastructure in Russia. You know, and sadly they've been autocratic for a thousand years, give or take with, you know, one or two interludes. And, and so that that's, that's telling and that's, you know, you, you, every every society grows crazy individuals, but the question is, in the you know the political culture within that society that can mold you certain you know one way or, or another. So I think that's that's kind of where we are. But I, I think I think Trump's done anyway. I don't. I think he's, I I, you know, I, I on, think on, I, yeah. I think he's on the downhill slide. Yeah. Given, given, I given, think the Demo Just let me in one little political comment. I know many. Let's face it. Many many Democrats are very very anxious to see him in jail, either for good or bad reasons. Letitia Jones and whatever. And you know some of us Republicans are sitting back and say, you know, don't don't throw me in that that briar patch. You know that. I mean, do do my work for me. Get get Trump off the stage. Yeah. Get the hook. Get him the hell out of here. And now we can have a primary between whoever DeSantis and Cotton and you know some some sane people. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I came into this forum today with the notion that we would 
solve anything or come up with a solution. No. <laughs> I'm, I, what, I, what I do is I know more than I thought I was going to wind up knowing. Uh, but among those things is not any clear sense of a solution. I would hope, I would think, I would think that you guys might agree that it's time to begin educating Americans more to the dangers here. We're getting this, we're, we're, I sense that we are sort of on the sidelines, we're there, we're, we're, we're throwing our billions out there to the Ukraine, we are, and, and I, don't, I don't feel that we really have this sense of what would happen if, if Vladimir took the nuclear option, where we would wind up. I, I think people need more information right now. Or are we giving ourselves enough information? What should we be saying to ourselves, anybody? Well, I mean, that, that's why we pay those guys in, in the Pentagon and the State Department to come up with plans and contingency plans. I assume they're working on it. I assume a bunch would it, of would it make would it even with, would it even well, make a difference if we started telling one another if somehow information came out in a social media television cable way about hey here's how you should be concerned about this because one side believes it and the other side won't and it'll depend on who the source is is there some way we can talk to ourselves as a group and say Guys, be prepared for the reality of what's happening or what you're hearing about on this particular Noble Hearts forum uh, right now, because it's a likelihood that something not so nice is going to happen. Is there some way of getting that point out to Americans, or are we beyond being able to talk to ourselves collectively? Yeah, well, I think, well, I'll, I'll make a political point here. I think Please, yeah. Biden, Biden has squandered a lot of credibility. I mean, if, if he could... Normally, you'd say, well, let Biden go on, make a nation, uh, you know, an address to the nation about the, the dangers in Ukraine and where we're going and all that. If he could restrain himself from not blaming MAGA Republicans for, you know, the Russian invasion, he might he might get a, a better hearing. But he's I, I think his speech has been, you know, quite divisive. Would we have to solve the country just? You know, basically a blow off anything he says. Would we you, have to solve everything? Would we have to solve all the differentiation and all the and all the uh, and, and and all of the marginalizing that we've done with ourselves before we could all hear the same message about the problems that we potentially face as a group? Or is there, you know, is there some, maybe every, both sides have to come together and say, we'll talk to our own people, become aware of what we're facing. I don't know if, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm just throwing this out. Is there some way that we can tell ourselves and prepare ourselves for what might happen? Because what, from what I'm hearing here, something bad is going to happen. It's a question of when and to what extent. Yeah, I mean, what, I would what, like, I'd, like to, what I'd like to see, I'll, I'll be short. What yeah, I'd like to ahead. see is for each side to be able to disagree with the other, but a without attributing bad faith. You know, it'd be nice if one side could say, there, I think your policy proposals are ridiculous and they're wrong and they're stupid. But I understand that you, you know, you really believe them, and you're trying, and you think that's what's best for the country, and that that would be nice coming from both sides. Uh, but I don't. John, you sound like a rational. Why. You sound like a rational Republican. I, 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 I was one, this. I think, and I'd like to believe that there are some out there, but I don't know that there's a ton of them. Rich, what do you think? I think that you're trying to approach it from a rational point of view, and what we're dealing with is both an irrational person, Putin and irrational thinking in terms of nuclear war. Yeah. The fact that he would even 
contemplate that is a testament to his irrationality in the moment and his desperation. Yeah. In I would like to resolution. I would like let, to let pose it. Finish, Charlie, oh. one thing you you brought up the past, how when we were children, the threat of nuclear war, duck and cover. We live with that, yeah. Have to remember, Putin also grew up in the same time frame as we did. Yeah. In the 1950s, there was the threat of the Cold War. I mean, the hot war, that there would be a nuclear war. Yeah. An interesting observation that Carl Jung made was that during that time period, there were numerous sightings of UFOs. And he wondered, what was that all about? Why suddenly would this become a global phenomenon? It goes back to the Romans, divide and conquer. You divide people, you conquer them easily. If aliens are attacking you, the, the world, the earth, all of the nations come together. Every science fiction movie from that era would have the That's very interesting. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. the UN the world responded. Yeah. 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 For yeah. a unified response. All of the divisions in our country, when there's a World War One or World War Two, yes, there are some outliers and but we come together as a united front. Yeah. We need an external enemy. And right now, we do have some. We have climate change, which is going to be as devastating as nuclear war, if it's not addressed. And there are other existential threats to our survival as a species. Like pandemics. Yeah. Pandemics. Yeah. But I, I would like to pose a less threatening Scenario and and a last and a last word on it all, Charles. It belongs to you. Yes, the solution, if there is a rational solution, is something along the lines of that great Republican thinker Henry Kissinger, whom I otherwise am not a great fan of, but in this case I tend to agree with. He said about six months ago that each side has to give up something in order to gain something. The Ukrainians have to give up the false hope of getting uh, the Crimea back and the probably false expectation of, through military success, preserving the Donbass and Luhansk regions as part of Ukraine. The Russians have to give up the false hope of, quotes, denazifying, unquote, Ukraine and of overthrowing the government of Ukraine and installing their own puppet regime. If you can get third-party interlocutors to indirectly, unofficially mediate between representatives of each side, which is something I understand Erdogan is attempting, as are the uh, leaders of Israel and, and Hungary, mm. there's the possibility of each side uh, job boning instead of fighting. This can take a long time, but I saw a hopeful sign today, a prisoner exchange. That's the first significant large-scale prisoner exchange since the beginning of the war. Mm. That's an indication that far from the public eye, 
these kinds of discussions are going on and have led at least to this one not insignificant concession by each side. If that process can continue, then I think each side realizes that there's no such thing as total victory. There's only accepting what's realistic, and I laid out what that could be. I see an equal problem, however, with Zelensky and the Ukrainian leadership, which again is sort of taboo to criticize in the United States, but it's not so taboo in Europe. He's holding out, at least rhetorically, for victory. I don't see that as a realistic option for all kinds of reasons, which some other time we might get into. So I think pressure also has to be put on Zelensky and his supporters to give up what they probably will never be able to achieve, which is the kind of Ukraine that existed before 2014. Yeah. Um, I, as I said a, a few moments ago, I came into this process, into this forum today, uh, looking for a, imagining that there might be a common uh, assessment of what the end result would be of all this. I, I, I suppose, uh, I don't want to say I want to, I'm, I'm settling. No, we're not settling. I think far more important than, than any absolute prediction of an endpoint was looking at all the different components that would go into whatever is going to come next. And this is one of the better discussions <laughs> that I've heard in a while, uh, because we just don't seem to talk about this wide a scope relative to the Russo-Ukrainian, Russo-Ukrainian uh, problem that we're confront that the planet is confronting right now. Uh, I uh, I'm going to go back and listen to this again. I, I don't I don't go back and listen to a lot of my own shows too often. This is one that I that I expect that I will. And I want to thank our our panelists today, uh, Dr. Rich Corelli, first time around on the panel. I, I trust by no means your last appearance on a Noble Hearts Forum panel. Uh, of course, John Cugini, and of course, Dr. Charles Webble. This has been um, revealing and uh, sobering and uh, well worth the time, and I, and I hope that enough of our listeners uh, will draw the same conclusion. What we usually do after something like this, besides maybe be a little bit jumpy, uh, one way to deal with that is uh, what we did during the break, and that's why center-left radio is called the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. It's the jazz part that becomes very helpful right about now. So I thank you all for being with us, and I wish you a little bit of uh, peace and happiness in your life that goes very well with a little more jazz.
listening to a special Noble Hearts Forum edition of Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and thank you once again for being part of today's show. My special thanks to our panelists, Dr. Charles Webble, Dr. Richard Corelli, and John Cugini for uh, what have been uh, some very sobering insights into the current Russo-Ukrainian situation. What are your thoughts? Let us know at www.centerlefttalkradio.com. Have a great day. <laughs>